there's no talk about climate change. There's talk about the weather. It's talk about how it's getting hotter, how the dry spells are longer. It's also a consistent set of pressures. Welcome to the Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-conscious individuals looking to learn the ideas, lessons, and philosophies driving today's climate leaders. I'm your host, Nathan Svee. I can't believe it. We're at the end of Season 4, and no better way to close the season than with Manuel Pinuela from Cultivo. Before we jump into the episode, I want to thank our Season 4 guests for taking the time to share their stories on how they're moving the world towards Net Zero. I'd also like to thank the team behind the podcast, specifically Tani, the executive producer, and Mitch, the audio engineer and composer, who together have put in hundreds of hours over the course of the season to ensure each episode sounds great. And lastly, I want to thank you. The Net Zero Life is an independent climate podcast with zero paid promotion. Despite that, we are continuously recognized for our incredible content and storytelling, and our numbers highlight those facts. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sending us your thoughts. And most importantly, Thank you for spending a bit of your time thinking about how to move the world towards net zero emissions. As per our normal routine, after the season finale, we'll be taking a break from weekly episodes to reflect on our content, improve our structure, and record new interviews for season five. With that behind us, let's move on to our season finale. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Manuel Pinuela, co-founder and CEO of Cultivo, a company focused on unlocking capital to regenerate nature. So what exactly does that mean? And how does one get into such a field, such as unlocking capital and regenerating nature? Manuel and I cover both of those in detail during the show, but as a quick primer, unlocking capital is investment dollars spent on restoring land to its original state, or at least restoring it to a place where its biodiversity improves through ecosystem growth. Regenerative capital is investment dollars that are put towards degraded land and creating improved outcomes for nature. Manuel and his founding team at Cultivo had such a strong idea they were able to get the sustainability equivalent of the 1990-92 Dream Team to join their board. This group includes Mark Tursik, former CEO of the Nature Conservancy, and previous Net Zero Life guest, and Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England. So, how do you found a company that attracts such influential people? Well, in Manuel's case, you start with an engineering degree, add in a PhD, a few successful startup exits, a couple awards and fellowships from the likes of MIT and the Mulago Foundation, and voila, you're ready to help move the world closer to net zero emissions through regenerating nature. Just kidding. It's not that easy. But it does make for a great interview. Here with us to close out season four of The Net Zero Life, Dr. Manuel Pinuela, co-founder and CEO of Cultivo. Manuel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Nathan, for the invitation. Yeah, no, the pleasure is truly all mine. There are so many places to start. And in my research, I heard you talking about a specific place I think will be interesting, which is your childhood growing up in Mexico and your first time thinking about land degradation, or maybe at that time in your childhood, you probably thought of it as something else. But if you take us back to your mindset, when do you first start noticing changes in land, in nature growing up? Yeah, well, so that that first time was when I was around four years old, or at least what I think was when I was four years old. I was in the outskirts of Mexico City, uh, think small valleys. It's a rugged terrain around Mexico City, just from its sheer elevation. 
And I had really the privilege of traveling to that area quite often with my granddad. And um, we would go for long walks. And it's something that the family had been doing for close to 60 years in that region. And it was from, yeah, it was from a hunting perspective, recreational perspective, to then actually starting to see on my side from anecdotes from my granddad, but actually uh, at the personal level, how imagine a house in a valley, in the in the skirts of a valley, looking at the at this lush valley, and how very quickly it started to to transition to agriculture. Uh, surprisingly, in that area, uh, rice paddies were were being set up, corn, small uh, land holdings, so a hectare, two hectares, so quite partitioned. And uh, this is all in the ejido context, which is this land tenure component of Mexico coming from the revolution. But the core thing here is that it was highly fragmented and everyone was in subs uh, subsistence type of agriculture. But the landscape started to, to uh, change quite significantly. So first agriculture, and then as I was growing up and continued to visit the area, it went to a couple of soccer, soccer fields, football fields, uh, to then uh, more cornfields. Then uh, in the mid-90s, it started to transition to more uh, housing yeah, developments. And everything started to degrade um, from, a, from now as a landscape perspective. Soils, uh, droughts started to hit the region. You start, I started to see in the span of more than, uh, no more than 10 years, uh, trucks uh, carrying water to fulfill when we were there on holiday to then seeing how those uh, housing, new housing developments were not being fulfilled by the urban sprawl of the nearest town or the nearest city. And all of a sudden that being derelict for about five years, then someone bought it, a golf course came in and the valley is gone, completely gone. And so when I took that to what I was then living, so that's Mexico City, and that was my first land degradation. I was like, how on earth could this happen? And of course I saw it at that, an emotional level from my grandparents and my the rest of my family. And take it all the way to now more adult life, coming out of a successful professional development through an IPO of my previous business, walking with my wife in the UK, and all of a sudden coming through this amazing valley in the Lake District and seeing significantly degraded plots of land, soil degradation primarily, zero vegetation, and the start contracts from that lush valley to a very degraded area. And, and so to me, it was a how on earth 30 plus years uh, and still we're doing the same thing. How, what can I do about it? So that was the, that was it when it dawned on me, Nathan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a number of places. I mean, it's a perfect segue into what you do into, um, with Cultivo and, and your mission of regenerating and rewilding 1% of um, the earth. Before we get there, though, can you tell us or tell me a little bit about what is the language e either back then in Mexico or, or, you know, in the UK now as well? Um, what is the language that the, the people of the community affected by the land degradation use? Is it climate change? Is it the globalization of um, both Mexico along with the United States and, and then the greater areas as well? So it, it's primarily, it's never uh, at least in Mexico, in that uh, community. So j just to position your your uh, listeners in 
what part of the planet. So Mexico City, an hour from it. Uh, this is the state of Morelos. And there's no talk about climate change. There's talk about the weather. It's talk about how it's getting hotter, how the dry spells are longer. And I'm sure everyone can relate to that now around the world. But it's also a consistent set of pressures. So the word that would permeate a lot is pressure, presiones, pressure, pressure, pressure for multiple parts, political parts, uh, of course, uh, illegal uh, trade cartels, primarily drug cartels, as well as just the fact that the markets are not there or someone is abusing. So a pressure from downstream supply of produce on an ag environment. And of course, then there's the, the urban sprawl, sprawl pressure of them not having enough capital, them, the landowners, not having enough cap capital to survive. Families start going to the US, for example, and they need to sell their land to that golf course, for example, or to a soccer field. And so the conversations similar to those that I had in the UK as I started digging into this were also pressures, economic pressures, a land transition and land use pressures and how the market is changing all the time around them with a more complexity as to how, how can I get? And I think that the at the end, the same place, the same conclusion was being taken both in Mexico and the UK, which was how can we get out of this vicious cycle? And, and it's, it's quite uh, emotional, right? Everything, the, the thing that I've more and more realized is that everything is emotional with land. Because it's a precious asset, because all of the landowners are always stewards. So that common denominator was, if, if I now abstract that uh, climate, but from a weather perspective, social pressure and land use pressures were the common, denominator, the common denominators. Yeah, as part of my research for the episode, I talked to a friend who uh, was born in Mexico. And the way she described it is... Um, it wasn't top of mind due to other priorities. And I think that will tie in closely to the rest of the conversation, which is how do you place a value on natural capital, on natural land, so that you can include it in your priorities for your social well-being, for your emotional well-being uh, and everything they're in, because you still need, presumably, to raise the welfare of the human population. I mean, you're not necessarily the biodiversity population. You need to create things, less so golf courses, but more so farms and economics, right, that support um, bringing up a, a, a lower class and a middle class um, all across the world, right, We here in the United States included. So if we fast forward a little bit, uh, you attend university uh, in 2002, 2007 in, in Mexico, study engineering, and then work as an engineer for a few years, and then go get your PhD in the UK, where you studied wireless transfer power. And, and I'd love to nerd out for a second here. Let me know if any of this is correct. It's all from the internet, and the internet can lie all the times. Um, but if I remember correctly, uh, from my electrical engineering classes, the wireless transfer power was inversely correlated to the distance between two pieces. And that was a, a major limiting between the two parts that you're trying to charge. And that was a major limiting factor. You uh, clearly uh, investigated it deeply and then also used that technology in your first startup. So can you tell us a little about, about you know, why you went into that field and then how you use that to uh, for your first startup, how you use that technology to, um, to succeed? Yeah, uh, so... Super happy that you're going on this. So, so, so first, why wireless power transfer? And it actually comes from uh, my first startup. Actually, Nathan was back in Mexico, uh, just prior to the PhD, and it was on on installing solar lighting luminaries across rural Mexico, 
for two fundamental reasons. This was not a energy uh, transition or anything like that to go from uh, to go to solar. It was actually because there was no grid or the grid was unreliable. And so back to the impact on the social communities as to how to now have at night, at dusk, commerce and actually reduce criminality rates. And after that one, the, the key thing that kept coming to me is how the reason why that was successful was because we were able to remotely control those solar lighting luminaries. Then as I had more professional experiences uh, across the industrial sector, it was all about, you know, IoT was coming up, but there was always this, this challenge on how are you going to power those devices that are remote, that are distant, or how are you going to make, basically wean ourselves from batteries or other types of storage devices. And so the intent of wireless power transfer on my PhD was, is there a way that we can have a green, as all PhDs should start, right? It's grandiose vision of, can we power this wirelessly on any means, right? And then of course, reality uh, and science kicks in, and then you start honing into, well, there should be a couple of uh, applications where this could work really well. And it started from an industrial environment. How do you power devices that are moving around, for example, a factory, a large industrial site? How do you power devices in the ag world? How do you power devices that are connected to our health, such as air pollution? And then how do you power devices that, for example, can be used in other means? For example, a biometric on a card. So. As uh, that PhD uh, transpired, the, the science behind it is actually one that allows for, you're, you're absolutely right, in terms of the, the decrease on power, but then the, the value here was how efficient you can make that. So all things considered, the physics being, as you said, how do you extract every minute micro uh, watt out of that energy that's flowing to you so that you power stuff? And so as you... Uh, and as the world continues to deploy more sensors, more efficient sensors, more efficient communication networks, that started to permeate. And thankfully, that business evolved into what became an IPO and gave me the bandwidth to be doing what we're doing in Cultivo. But the, the interesting thing there is that across all of those applications, I was also experiencing the needs of data to analyze areas, especially ag-related. And, and so... Again, another device, another opportunity came through to for me to start going deep into nature, but from a very left field point of view. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and the beauty is the the theme of season four, the connecting tissue between each episode is this idea of how do you measure. Uh, and so we'll talk about that in a number of ways. And I thought that we could start um, at the first principles of what Cultivo does. And specifically, so defining some terms here for the audience, I think will be be helpful. But and there's a few places we can start. Uh, happy to go in any direction. Specifically, giving us a giving me and the audience a quick understanding of what Cultivo does, and then we'll dive into you know defining regeneration, uh, natural capital, and then this three legged stool of uh, net zero via water, biodiversity, and carbon. So. I know that's a lot, but why don't we start with um, first just like a brief introduction of Cultivo, and then we'll jump into like, what does natural capital truly mean? Great. So Cultivo is a climate-focused fintech, and our mission is to unlock investment into nature scale. So do it really fast, very efficient, replicable, and, and also at a very large scale, 
because our purpose is to regenerate 1% of the world's lands. To give a bit more context of that, that's about the size of Mongolia. So the way we do that is that we've developed a series of proprietary uh, technologies and intellectual property to allow us to very quickly assess distressed natural assets or non-distressed natural assets, but really to quickly assess what is the natural capital that that tract of land is sitting on and could actually create? What are the yields that it could create? And really looking at it from that three-legged stool that you mentioned, right? It's from a nature-based perspective, if you have water gains, if you have biodiversity gains, then you will capture carbon. And so Cultivo actually always and has started from the nature component and primarily biodiversity, water, and then carbon. And so now how do you push that forward? This one thing is to just find it or assess it, but that's really not uh, what our planet needs. It really needs to go all the way through the packaging where you actually unlock the capital. So we work upstream on this front, Nathan. So we're identifying those sites, originating, sourcing those portfolios, packaging them all the way so that financial institutions and corporations, primarily Cultivo's customers, can make a decision that is that has all of the different criteria that would allow them to deploy not only that first check, but actually a stream of capital to portfolios that look and feel like that one. And it would be against their own criteria, back to the net zero pledge. Their criteria could be from a financial perspective, but in most cases, it's connected to their net zero pledge, their, their nature positive pledge, more and more their water positive pledge, and uh, how does that sit together with all of the, their stakeholders? Very importantly, more and more, it's also if we're talking about their own land assets, how do you reprice them? So that's a, a lot to unwrap there, but let me carry on with a, with a pipeline. Once they make that decision, the whole idea now is what do you, what should happen in that portfolio for it to be successful? More importantly, as the market Water, water and biodiversity markets as well is what is the quality of that portfolio. And in that point, we all rely on the fact that we create very quickly an ecosystem of partners that regenerate, that will be the ones connected to the regeneration of that track of land. And so it allows us on two fronts to move at the speed of trust. So for example, if we're speaking to those indigenous communities in Mexico or to a wealthy landowner in the US or Australia, you name it, to move with partners that have been working and have had boots on the ground in those locations. But more importantly, it allows us to keep everyone aligned so that we can hit on additionality, permanence, and all of those elements that don't stick just on the co-benefits make sure that all of those are additional across the lifespan and hopefully beyond of what the registries are looking for. That allows us to de-risk the projects. And therefore, now you're getting not only capital that wants to fall for, to it, but actually you're also getting and securing the offtake of the whole natural capital. So for listeners who um, a bigger picture may help here, which is that uh, we're talking about carbon offsets as a mechanism um, and carbon credits as a mechanism to regenerate land or rewild land. And specifically, as I understand it, um, your goal is, is to work backwards to solve that problem we talked about earlier, which is 
that um, for a developer to come in and say, what can I do? How can I make the most money with this land? Well, right now there's an easy way to say, okay, put a golf course. That can be a uh, revenue generating asset versus through Cultivo. Now you have a new way to, to monetize land and one that aligns both financially and also with net zero goals of a future world. Is that fair? It's super fair. And I think I would just make a, an important distinction back to your whole point on how do you create social additionality? How do you move everyone so that it's that I think that the important point that you were making, if if I connected to this, is that you want the whole community there to be aligned for that amazing valley to remain as an, an amazing valley, right? That's performing through nature. Uh, because believe me, they don't like the golf course and uh, the other developments that happen there. So the the component there is what is the structure and what are the land use practices that should be happening so that you're increasing revenues for everyone. You're not only increasing revenues, but you're providing financial returns and you're repricing the asset. It might be that you're repricing the asset because you want to monetize it at some point, but it also can be, for example, for First Nations because the higher the price of the asset, the more conducive it is for the whole community to protect it. It's this perceived value on something that it's worth it allows everyone to be a good steward, right? Because this is not the dust bowl. It's actually a performing asset that it's worth a lot for future generations. 100%. I mean, just an anecdote for the listener, as example is... Um... I've recently gone through and lost two pairs of Warby Parker glasses, which are relatively inexpensive, right? Uh, and purchasing a, an expensive pair of glasses, I would likely take care of them better. Um, so I, I hopefully that helps illustrate the point there. We're going to get into um, specifically this idea of how Cultivo helps um, add value to the land and, and, and two pathways. One, through generating carbon credits, and then two, through also pricing, um, pricing the commodity or the unit of production that the land generates at a higher value because it's sequestering carbon. And I, I'm really excited about discussing those two mechanisms and which one is the future. Before we get there, I'd love to hear you know, your influences, the material you read, how you've come across to build this mental map, because it's very in-depth. Obviously, people are going to listen. And I think, I think it'll be helpful context for both me and the listener to understand how did Manuel get all of this knowledge super in depth, both from a, a, like understanding how you measure biodiversity, how you measure water, how, what a registry is, what a carbon offset, uh, and not specifically going into those items, but for you, who were your major influences? What books were you reading? Where are you going to learn all of this information? All right. So uh, the first person was my granddad. Uh, so, so this just happened by listening to it. Uh, but by, by the way, you know, my granddad was not in, in, agricultural or nature conservation field. He, he was a medic. Uh, but but it's just that love for nature that permeated through uh, every conversation that we had and we deep, deep respect for nature. Then as um, I, I, I also had the privilege of being in a school in Mexico that put a lot of emphasis on nature, uh, you know, from, sorry, as trivial as make sure you know where you're cutting your Christmas tree from. Uh, that's how much emphasis the school put, but also to at the age of fifteen, even I had I did my first research project on an ecosystem in the in Nunavut, just because that that was a project, and so it just started this this uh, emphasis on looking at nature from a different lens, 
And so I started from seriously encyclopedia to moving into um, deep understanding. For example, I had the the amazing experience at Imperial College to be very close to the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and how different technologies were being applied to measuring from an IoT perspective, from water to biodiversity to DNA sequencing to even the, the shifts of terrain. And always from a sensing, at that point, the electronic engineering means, like how do you deploy sensors to measure all of this? So I need I needed to go deep on what on earth was it that uh, that I was measuring. And after that, uh, let's say as my more connect, more connections to nature started to happen, a fundamental book to me was uh, Nature's Fortune uh, uh, by Mark Tersek, and I know he's been in your in your show. And now I have the pleasure to, of having Mark in, in our board. But when I read that book, I started to realize the dynamics of and the value of nature across multiple stakeholders. So towards natural capital, that was a fundamental read for me. From a, how do you get to construct and understand the value of nature? It was also on what I was experiencing through my professional career, my previous startup of the value of assessing large amounts of data, primarily just spatial data from remote sensors and always ground truthing them with sensors on the ground and the importance of the quality of those sensors for, in other words, making sure that it's not garbage in, garbage out on the quality of the sensor itself. So uh, as I continue to, uh, to go deep into nature, I'm now part of the Mulago Fellowship, uh, Henry Arnhold Foundation, and that's just been a, a treasure trove of knowledge from uh, conservationists that have more than 30 years of experience, uh, such as Lorenzo Rosenzweig from the Mexican Fund of Conservation to Frank and Hank uh, from Nature for Justice, and just a series of partners that have been coming into my life that I um, have become actual mentors. Um, and so as I've been going through this, I, you know, I'm, I would be actually happy to share one, one in fact, uh, that I would highlight is the Atlas of the Invisible. This book is just uh, amazing by uh, James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti uh, because it's, it goes deep, not only on the science as to how do you make data visible from a geospatial perspective, but actually to the point of all of Cultivo. Data on, its, on, on itself doesn't matter a lot unless you put value to it and context. So to be able to get to value, you need to get context. And so... That has been my 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 story on this and how I've ramped up that knowledge. Still on a very steep learning curve, Nathan. So going back to defining these first principles and, and, and perhaps through a story of a project that you've worked on, biodiversity, water, and carbon. You know, one, how do you measure? And then how do you define that? Um, you know, adding the anecdote to the data and you stacked rank them, you know, water, biodiversity, kind of tier one, and then carbon tier two, which I think is counterintuitive to the way the world currently views it based off of this like obsession of carbon and carbon dioxide equivalents. And that the, um, you know, we, carbon credits are, are, are somewhat a thing, uh, although arguably, um, and we'll get into that as well, but the biodiversity credit market is like totally falling apart at this current moment in time, right? So 
through through a story or through a narrative or an example of a project that you've done, can you tell us a little about how do you measure these things and why do you stack rank biodiversity and water um, be up above carbon? Perfect. So so actually, I'm going to keep going on the that that first uh, valley that I mentioned. It was actually an ecosystem that's a grassland towards a savanna, towards a forest. So I just want to paint the picture on grasslands. Normally, when I talk about grasslands, people think uh, prairies, right? With just tall grass, no trees. But actually, most grasslands, which is one of the most abundant ecosystems in our planet, has has multiple uh, multiple layers, right? It can go from a savanna, shrubs, uh, prairies, and so the first the the first real uh, case study where where all of this came to light was a grassland in the north of Mexico, uh, state of Coahuila. So this is bordering Texas, and this is at the barrier of desertification of North America. It's part of the actually it, it's part of the. Uh, Great Plains of North America, but actually the North, the the, the Great Plains of North America actually start pretty much uh, from Central America, and so in this area, this is an area that has high elevation, rugged terrain, and it's not your typical desert. Again, back to those unconscious biases we that we have on ecosystems, but this is an area where if I if you start to your point on carbon, how much carbon can I capture here? There, there, there's there's no science that says, oh, you know, you're going to get be getting carbon from grassland just like that. You need, back to the point on nature base, you need grass to exist. You need soil to be permeating. Uh, you need water to be permeating through the soil. You need an a rich biodiversity above ground and underground to start going through the carbon cycle so that photosynthesis can actually uh, be happening and that uh, carbon can go through the roots and the biodiversity in the soils can actually break that and continue to increase that carbon cycle more and more and more in a grassland. Therefore, you go back to the first principles and, and to, to your point, I think it's just a it's just a quick mental shortcut that people are skipping the fundamental steps on nature-based solutions that if you want carbon, there's only one way from an ecosystem is that you need to increase biodiversity and you need to increase soil, water, soil moisture potential and the overall balance, water balance of the site. So that's why to your tierage, you're absolutely right. You first look at what is the biodiversity in that area? How much has it been lost? How much is it at risk? And how much can we achieve gains if the ecosystem was regenerated? How much water can we capture? What is also the trajectory of the water situation, droughts and floods in that area? And based on that, we then start to form a construct of how much carbon can we capture above ground and how much capture, how much carbon we can capture below ground. More importantly, and then for how long? So in the example of the grassland, your main regeneration engine is ungulates, grazing animals. In the case of this this project in Coahuila, uh, where bison uh, was eradicated for more than a century, or the main herds were eradicated for more than a century, then what you have is domestic cattle. And so then how do you make that cattle mimic a herd as much as possible? So in the case of this, going back to building up the natural capital here, your main driver is 
the cattle moving at a specific rate, so to mimic those herds. So short duration, high density grazing is fundamental so that you're removing invasive species. You are uh, you're allowing the cattle to then eat significantly in that area, uh, fertilize it, move the soil, and move to the next one, but that they cannot go back to that same paddock, call it, that same area of the grassland until now wild grass has started to, to come to it, deep root systems start to come. So think about 200 days after, so multiple seasons have happened, and then, and just then, you start to capture carbon, right? Because grass is growing, more water is permeating. So you're doing two things there, is that the resilient, and now let's jump onto the carbon side. What the beauty of this is that now you're capturing carbon, but hold on a second, you're capturing carbon with all of the additionality that the market is demanding for, right? That carbon was not there. You're actually removing carbon back to nature, right? Not everything is the, at the same level of degradation. Some parts of a grassland are going to be very degraded. Some others are going to be less. But the idea here is that you you're now need with technology to figure out how much carbon rather than having just a linear approach to it or a blanket statement, how much carbon on a hectare or a square meter basis you're capturing, that carbon then has a bunch of co-benefits because you're increasing biodiversity, new species are coming above, and I really want to amplify below ground, the whole watershed continues to increase. And now you have a carbon removal ton with biodiversity co-benefits, with water co-benefits, and the most important part, for those heads of cattle to move around, you needed a community. Yes, there's technology to help on that, say electric fencing, virtual, virtual fencing, but the true piece is that you need the community to put also, to paint a picture here, a community of cowboys and ranchers that are doing this, pastoralists that are moving the animals. And so now you have another fundamental co-benefit almost now, thankfully, a table stake of what a high-quality carbon credit looks like, which is social additionality. So now you've gone in a, in a cycle where you're now removing carbon, you're doing it at the same time with all of those co-benefits that are completely in, intrinsic for that carbon to be captured, but that's the output. It was never the, the objective function, right? You increase biodiversity and water, you engage the community. And if you do those things, then you capture carbon for a very long time. I think the beauty of the three-legged stool example is that because it helped prevent against this idea of capturing carbon through a non-native fast-growing species of trees, for example, right? If you were trying to optimize solely around a nature-based solution carbon credit, you could plant a species that grows incredibly quickly, like palm or bamboo, although I, I, I'm not a pastoralist, nor am I an um, agriculturist. So I have no idea if those would grow in that specific region, but it is some, it's a concern, right? Because if you optimize carbon exclusively, it's not a multivariate problem where you have biodiversity, water, and social economic benefits as well, then you miss out on that and you lose the biodiversity. Bringing that back to the full scale picture though, um, for the listener, is that this is exactly the, the methodology so that you can protect land from someone else coming and say, hey, we need to make this plot of land economically viable for our people or for an individual, for our investors. Now you can come through and say, hey, you can do all those things and you can protect nature and move the world closer to net zero as well. Moving on to Cultivo, let's talk a little bit about your work in Cultivo, how it, uh, how it moves the world closer to net zero emissions. We've talked about a little bit at a high level, and I think a, a good frame of reference for the listener 
uh, who's followed the show or more generally who are familiar with energy service companies. Um, we talked about an episode five uh, with Quinton Barnes of Illumia, but one of the things that they did is they would go into grocery stores or in other industrial areas and say, we will replace your light bulbs, your incandescent with LEDs, and then you're going to save money and we're going to share the savings, right? Uh, and, and that example works because it's, it's what can I do for you and what can I do for nature? It's kind of this double this double win. Um, and so as we talk about Cultivo, I, I think giving that uh, that perspective will help listeners understand what it is you do. Uh, but please take it away. Yeah, perfect. So for example, uh, some of our customers, uh, large corporations have significant land assets. Uh, either they own them, they lease them, they have options to it. So for example, one of our customers um, has more than 15 million hectares, has access to more than 15 million hectares. Um, and the question there is, back to the same as that indigenous community, a worthy landowner, what is the natural capital that I'm sitting on? Because I do have an eight zero pledge. I have an nature positive pledge. And I want to reprice my assets, even from a point of, are these assets going to be climate resilient? So the way we unlock that, especially with that sheer amount of land, is how do you quickly assess the assets overall as a portfolio basis? And where do you start uh, making sure that you're building up that deployment of capital consistently and successfully because what you what we really don't want is to create any antibodies on this space any scars so the 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 setup there is that we to the analogy the landowner says hey this is what i have and we come and we say well actually if we were to start to regenerate your land uh you are going to receive new revenue streams connected to water biodiversity and carbon food uh, and other uh, co-benefits. And across those revenue streams, not only is it that your asset is now a profit center that's allowing you to also meet your net zero pledges, but it's also repricing your asset. That might have been a liability. And this is an, an important, uh, this is now going a bit deeper on the whole on the whole conversation, which is many of these assets, they're so distressed, they're so degraded that they're liabilities, they're non-performing assets. Uh, and they're they're a cost center rather than a profit center as nature uh, uh, should be. It, this is don't get me wrong. This is contentious, right? For me to, to be talking about how nature can be profitable, uh, but the reality is that as we build on natural capital on that customer's land, new revenue streams are coming. Climate resilience is going, and this starts to create a flywheel that it goes to the point of how the risk on their asset is decreasing. At the same time that the asset price is increasing. And so the barriers of entry for those customers to come and say, why on earth, as to your analogy, wouldn't we do that, are, are quite low now. And thankfully, as we're now starting to scale up in Cultivo, is that we've honed the, the case on this so well that more and more customers are coming to this. And not only customers as large conglomerates, but also significant land groups as indigenous communities and First Nations around the world are also realizing that they are sitting on assets that could be very valuable. We always do it on a profit with a lens of having that social additionality through profit sharing, right? They are benefiting from that as per your example. So why is this fundamental to nature compared to maybe other industries? Is that you really want all of the stakeholders, Nathan, to be there, 
not for the short term. They need to be there for the long term. So in part of what the carbon markets are demanding there, rightfully, is that those projects, that carbon is stored for a very long time, or that, that those species are there for a very long time, as a minimum of 30 years. Um, so I, I hope that, that helps paint a picture as to how we're now achieving scale as we're starting to cover, you know, take that grassland project that was uh, already insanely big, uh, about 50,000 hectares where we started to one that is now more than 2 million hectares. And hopefully that's the, the flywheel that we will continue to see over the next years. Yeah, I think we'll we'll transition to an example, a different sort of example, and we'll bring it home and we'll also transition to this idea of, I'd love to get your take on the future of carbon markets, um, specifically around this idea of either coupling the carbon intensity of a unit of production. So um, I'm going to use orchards as an example here, but the carbon intensity associated of an apple, we'll talk about Honeycrisps because I'm based in Washington uh, and mm-hmm. Honeycrisps are, are super popular here. Um, and so keeping that carbon intensity of the apple versus decoupling it and kind of creating two separate markets where there's the apple and then the carbon credit associated with generating or, um, or, or the agriculture associated with that apple. And so... If we think about an owner uh, of, of an orchard of apples, um, presumably they have an opportunity to regenerate even within their own practices. Uh, and they come to Cultivo and they're looking to do two things. One, figure out what their baseline is today um, in terms of emissions. And then two, how, how would you recommend that they think about this idea of, should I measure things of a carbon intensity standpoint? So now I can charge a premium for my product because the kilograms per CO2e or biodiversity credits or water credits associated with my apple is less than the regular apple on the market. So consumers or, um, or supply chains will hopefully pay me more for this apple. Or two, I just sell it as a commodity, um, a, a, an apple in the commoditized market, and then sell those carbon credits that Cultivo helps me generate separately on a carbon registry. Yeah. So so the, the first thing, as in any other activity, back to our net zero uh, life, right, is that the, the first thing that we look with that landowner would be to your point on the baseline, but it's also what are the what are their practices, right? That apple uh, operation needs to be decarbonized as much as possible. And it shows to you know, back to the point of we really need to show additionality. It's not only the, the baseline, but it's also to show that there's additionality as to why carbon credits should be flowing to this area, right? That the reason of why regeneration is happening is because it's being spurred by a market of carbon credits and water and biodiversity going into it. Now, the reality is that almost like taking the analogy from a science-based targets initiative, right? So decarbonize as much as possible that operation. And then to the once you've decarbonized all of that apple operation, it's what is the, what is the carbon footprint of that apple to then say, okay, this is now fully decarbonized with the last mile on a kicker with offsets, great, embed them there, but then take the surplus because in a good apple orchard operation, you would have a surplus of carbon credits with a lot of co-benefits that creates another stream, potentially even connected to that same supply chain, another stream of revenues to that landowner. So it does two things. And I think sometimes this is decoupled. When we talk about natural capital, the main driver of that Apple Orchard project is the natural capital associated to food. Food is natural capital. So you now have a stack of natural capital that is food 
carbon, but water biodiversity. And then the importance on the markets right now and how they're evolving. So just on a comment of what you mentioned there on biodiversity is that we're starting to see really good uh, markets on biodiversity that are leapfrogging the mistakes that have been done 20 years ago on carbon. But also that at the food level for that premium component, the market is starting to make sure that there's no double counting. So back to the measurement point. Because you could be bundling biodiversity to the produce itself, and you can be bundling biodiversity also to the carbon. And that's fine as far as we don't double count. Now we're double counting against how do we bundle co-benefits against the different flows of natural cap. So, but going back to that landowner, what we want to do is to make sure that that orchard landowner is incentivized to regenerate their land. So ideally the full cycle happens when the regeneration has happened, therefore his or her apples are hitting a higher price and new revenue streams are coming. But more importantly, his land at the long term will be more climate resilient and more climate adaptable because more water can be infiltrated. You know, the biodiversity above and below ground is healthier and therefore more resilient to droughts. And at the same time, new revenue streams are coming that allow that landowner, as it's already starting to happen with some of our landowners, can have lower insurance premiums or can have different financial perks coming to their other operations. So finally, their asset is priced. And so if all of a sudden comes a shopping mall or a parking center trying to be set up in his orchard or her orchard, they're, they're going to have a very high bar to try to demolish that orchard. So that's a dynamic that we're starting to see in the market here. From your lens, where are we in terms of the infrastructure necessary for carbon accounting, measurement, verification of all of these projects um, that will help build out this market, you know, from my perspective, at least? But we have kind of these disparate methodologies, the disparate registries, and we, it's kind of, you know, we're talking of apples or it's apples to oranges today. Uh, especially on the carbon accounting side from products. And so like, where are we today from your perspective? And then where do we need to go such that we can facilitate a market that these apples um, or the supply chain is priced properly to include the economic co-benefits of biodiversity, water, and carbon? I would start at the, at the land perspective, right? All of the data, and this is, for example, what we do on the technology that we've also developed, is how do you make all of that data associated to the natural capital observable to all stakeholders so that no double counting is happening, but actually so that you can surface that data to both the investor, the landowner, and the offtaker of whatever flow of natural capital there is. Now, we're, what this does is that actually towards your point on the methodologies is that the bar on the methodologies and therefore the registries continues to go up because of a market pressure demand. What we don't see yet is an homologation of what that should look like. But you know, the Integrity Council, the registries themselves are organizing, and both the legacy ones, or let's say the original ones and, and the new ones that are being uh, coming left, right, and center on this market, are moving the, the bar so that their methodologies are all looking at additionality, permanence, leakage in the same way. The methodologies have to be specific, though. I, I do want to amplify that point. It is not the same, back to your, your, your use case, it is not the same thing to have that apple orchard in Washington to one in Asia. 
right? And the methodologies will need to be different to account for that. They shouldn't be completely different, but they should be going on the same rails. And then when it comes to the flow, so that was upstream, capture the data upstream, but also downstream, making sure that if all the data is observable, then that the allocation of that data against multiple streams at the point of a transaction is also traced back. So it, it therefore allows for repricing those flows. So repricing the apple, repricing the carbon, but it's also making sure that whoever is downstream is also connected to that data point forever. And this is a this is a, a comment where I to me this is where that biggest gap is, Ethan, which is that once an organization retires a carbon ton, they're wedded to that carbon ton for life because they retired a carbon ton that they're hoping is going to be there stored for a very long time. And so they will want to continue to see the data of that carbon ton that they retired forever. And that's not there all the time. So that's where I would put a lot of that gap. But also, so I see gaps on the two extremes, right? Upstream and downstream. But a lot of the technologies, for example, in the monitoring, reporting, and verification space are being built. The registries are starting to open up what that ledger should look like. Yes, you know, there are a lot of applications on this for blockchain, but I don't think it, it's a matter of is that technology there? I think that the technology is there. It's a matter of how that is being applied at the market level. It's definitely super exciting. Um, I think a little bit, there is this, um, there possibly is a feeling of, you know, why is it taking so long or too little, too late? But we're, we're totally, we're on our way. We have gone down the science path throughout, which has been super fun. If we pull back a little bit and just talk about you and your why and, um, and your perspectives uh, in terms of why you do what you do, what does success look like for you personally and Cultivo more generally? Well, for me personally, Nathan, is that um, that degraded landscape that I saw in my childhood and then my adult midlife point that spurred me into Cultivo starts to not be that common denominator across our planet. And yeah, I'm doing it for my son. Basically, Cultivo started when his life started, and it was because of him. So I really hope that by the time that we're successful, and I'm going to connect it to what success looks for Cultivo, that uh, the concept of distressed natural assets is well understood. And more importantly, it's very quick to know how to regenerate it. So uh, success to Cultivo would be that we've set up the ways and the paths successfully to regenerate 1% of the world so that there are hundreds of cultivos that then can take the rest of that de uh, degradation because it's just insane. So it's still uh, a really insane goal to regenerate 1% of the world, but we hope that we're creating the blueprint and a, success, a very successful business that then it mobilizes a lot more businesses and we're already starting to see it. Uh, thankfully, what I love about this, this industry though, is that candor is there, right? Transparency is there. And the, the amount of companies that are coming up that say, hey, Cultivo, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the motivation on, on, on this space. We're, we're on it, but on this region and we're partnering um, is, is starting. So that, that would be success. Success would be not only that purpose, but that other 
companies, other organizations are coming for the rest of the pie to be regenerated. Is there one specific sustainability leader, sustainability influencer that you follow on social media or via newsletter that either inspires you or that you recommend other people go check out as well? Well, yeah, for sure, uh, Mark Terzik and uh, Mark Carney. Um, I also I'm deeply privileged to to have also Mark joining our board um, together with a with a, a lot of conservationists on, on this space and and people that are really wanting to move financial markets at the faster to your point we're a bit too late yes we are but therefore we need to accelerate and so yeah I would say uh, follow them if you are not already doing so uh, and then the the one that I would also flag is yeah, I didn't mention it before, but that TED talk from Alan Savory's uh, is still one of the ones that I go back to. It's very connected to the story that I talk about uh, uh, on the grasslands. Therefore, follow the Savory Institute. And back to your point on accounting and how the markets are performing, look at the uh, land to market, which is more connected as to how those natural capital flows are, are evolving. This is a little bit of an unfair question, I already know, but um, do you have a preferred carbon registry or methodology for um, verifying carbon projects? I don't. Uh, to the point of that, uh, Nathan, is that actually we've developed a, uh, an algorithm that basically based on the natural capital, ecoregion, biome, context, social context, it automatically selects that methodology. And, and it does one an important piece is that it removes biases because it's very easy to, for a human to then go and say, hey, I already know this methodology of this registry. I'm just going to try to shoehorn everything that I see against it. Totally fair. Last question uh, before we, we, t- we finish wrapping up, which is if there was one part of the world that you could regenerate by snapping your fingers, which part would it be? Mexico. Yeah, I figured that's where you're going to go. Uh, yeah. Totally fair. What about <laughs> too, too predictable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's, let's say Mexico is already regenerated. Um, is there a different part of the world that you love as well? Yeah. I'm, uh, so I also got the, you know, in, in my life, becoming a British citizen was, was, uh, was really important at the personal level. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. So I would love uh, that valley that spurred me into Cultivo to also be regenerated. And one that is getting super close to my heart is just uh, the Midwest, um, the grasslands in the US. Uh, it's the potential of that area is just um, amazing. Yeah. For those who want to um, paint a picture of what the grasslands looked like, there is a book by Stephen Ambrose called Undaunted Courage, which documents the um, the journey of Lewis and Clark uh, going through and, and they describe he, Stephen Am- um, in Undaunted Courage, I just blanked on his name, Stephen Ambrose describes what it is that they see directly from their journals. And it's obviously vastly different than um, where we are today. So it's a big book, but I, I do recommend the read. Manuel, thank you so much. We dove super deep into carbon credits, into biodiversity and water and the importance there. Um, I'm hoping that the audience uh, learned a lot. I personally did. Super grateful for your time. If people want to get in touch with you or follow your work, what's the best way to do that? Oh, well, for sure, uh, at the personal level, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, but also on our channel. So go to cultivo.land 
and uh, looking forward to to hear from your listeners. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again to Manuel for joining us today. You can connect with him on Twitter at Manuel Pinuela, M-A-N-U-E-L-P-I-N-U-E-L-A, or via LinkedIn. And you can follow Cultivo's work on Twitter as well at Cultivo Land, Cultivo spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-O-L-A-N-D, and at Cultivo.land. All of this can be found in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at The Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at The Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion, it is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until Season 5, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.